The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And thank you for coming too. Um, recently someone gave me the... Can you hear me okay? Is it light enough? Yeah? When someone left this on my desk, it's, it's a little piece of paper and has a little list of statements, several of which I'm going to read. I have no home. I have no parents. I make awareness my home. I have no life or death. I make the tides of breathing my life and death. I have no means. I make understanding my means. I have no magic secrets. I make character my magic. I have no strategy. I make unshadowed by thought my strategy. I have no miracles. I make right action my miracle. I have no enemy. I make carelessness my enemy. I have no sword. I make absence of self my sword. Doesn't they, it's just listed as anonymous. Um. And when I read it, I was thinking, um, yes and no. <laughs> there's a, uh, in, in the world of Zen, uh, there's been many notable teachers, and maybe one of the most notable was Huay Neng. And the, one of the many stories of Wei Neng was um, an illiterate uh, wood gatherer, you know, came from very uh, humble origins and then rose to become a very influential Zen teacher. In some ways, as, as with many influential spiritual teachers, the, the practice of Zen shifted around given his influence on it. Um, and one of the stories about him is when he was eight years old, there, there's a, a, a sutra, a sutta in uh, the Zen tradition and the Mahayana tradition called the Heart Sutra. And, and it really captures this notion of essentially letting go letting go uh, of any way we're clinging, you know? In, in some ways, a very basic teaching. <coughs> any way we're identifying, any way we're creating a self, clinging to thoughts, and, um, and this is how the heart super goes. It, it's a long list of negations, and then it says, and in this state, there is no hindrance. And you can come next Saturday and explore that. <laughs> and with no hindrance, no fear exists. And when no fear exists, the mind is no problem. Yeah. And then it goes on and says, and without the mind being a problem, uh, awakening is abundant. It just, wherever you look, it's teaching you that manifestation. 
Then. So Hui Neng, eight-year-old boy, started with his teacher when he was young. And he's standing with his teacher and they're chanting these negations. And Hui Neng, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no path, no awakening. Uh, and Hui Neng says, but I have eyes, I have ears. Uh, And the teacher was uh, impressed by the astuteness that he he could, he was seeing there is something in the human condition that is, maybe we could say, determined in expressing itself. it's very, the very activity of being alive is to express self, is to express the emotions, the thoughts, the engage, the relatedness of being. So I had these lofty thoughts in my mind as I was driving down here, you know? And of course, uh, the best mind to deliver such lofty thoughts is at ease and clear, peaceful. And, uh, and I was driving and I was about three car lengths from the guy in front of me, or gal, I don't know, the car in front of me. And this car came up and swedged itself into that space. And I noticed this kind of hmm. And then that was followed by a kind of um, disappointment in my own uh, response. Yeah. And then that was followed by um, a kind of let it all go. No? And, and if you'd have been sitting beside me, you wouldn't have, I think you wouldn't have noticed a thing, because it's all these just little flickers. It wasn't like leaning on the horn and screaming out the window. It's just, <laughs> it's just little flickers, you know? But there they were. You know? that, that way, um, in the middle of our sincerity, in, in the middle of our dedication, uh, Something happens and there's response, you know. There's that momentary, you know, pulling away or pushing into, you know. Once I was with a Zen teacher, Kovancino Roshi, and another Zen teacher from San Francisco Zen Center, and we were doing something, and the other teacher uh, made a mistake in how to do it. And um, he said, somewhat apologetically, um, oh, I got that wrong. 
and Kovantino Roshi said, um, our mistakes are what allow people <coughs> to love us. You know, it gives, that's how they can love us. They can love us by our imperfection. <coughs> yeah. in, in Japanese carpentry, in the classic Japanese style, if, if a carpenter makes something and he hasn't made a single mistake in the doing of it, in the crafting of it, um, he either takes a knife or a hammer and nicks it. Usually somewhere, obviously, where it's not, it's not going to offend the beauty of it, just in a corner or something. Just that way in which um, the, the way in which in Zen, when they make a circle, the classic way is the circle has a bit of a gap. A Supi circle isn't a complete circle. It has a bit of a gap. The, the way in which our, as Covencino so softly and beautifully said, our imperfection is how the world enters us and how we enter the world. You know? When we notice the mind that arises when someone cuts in in front of us, um, and then we notice in our own sincere effort how we relate to that and struggle with that and learn from that. Um, it helps the Dharma unfold. And then if we relate that to the Heart Sutra, and in some ways you could say, well, the heart, that negation is to go to jhana. Jhana is a deep place of absorption into, we could say, elemental consciousness. And, and then from that place, something shifts. Mm-hmm. But we can also bring this into, like I studied, the teacher I studied with in Thailand, Thailand um, he said, I decided to, in, the, in, the, in my efforts, uh, Buddha Dasa, in my efforts to establish that deep state of concentration, I will live in the jungle by myself. And his brother, who was a monk too, he was a monk, each day brought some food and hung it from a tree. So he didn't, he didn't even have the, the, the contact with his own brother. You know? and, and he did this for three years and meditated as diligently as he could. <laughs> And then he came out and he said, I didn't do it. I didn't achieve that state. So certainly by his reckoning, this was a difficult accomplishment to bring the mind to that pristine, awake awareness 
that's essentially, in Buddhist terms, realizing the pure nature of consciousness. Um, And yet, even though, and I don't say this to in any way invalidate that practice or that expression, but in the simple act of noticing we're sparking something, you know. In noticing the mind that arises when that car wedges itself in, in noticing the mind that follows that, in noticing the mind that follows that, in noticing the sensations of the inhale, in noticing the sensations of the exhale, in noticing as you connect to it, the inhale can have a certain kind of characteristic of open, opening, allowing, receiving. The exhale can have the characteristic of releasing, letting go. Um, there's a way in which we can uh, taste, taste the spark of non-grasping that, def- that illuminates awakening. Yeah. Several years ago, I was taking a calligraphy class with uh, Kaz Tanahashi, a wonderful artist and Buddhist scholar and Buddhist practitioner. He lives in Berkeley. And I'd taken calligraphy classes before, and the previous teacher, Kaz's Japanese previous teacher, he was a wonderful, sweet guy, and he'd illustrated these different styles, you know, and then he'd say, okay, now try this. And then we'd try it, and then he'd say, okay, now this style. And it was wonderful. Kaz's approach to the workshop was like this. Here's what you're going to do for the next three hours. You're going to draw the character for Ichi, Japanese for one. Character for Ichi is a short, straight line. <laughs> and so, but to draw a, straight, a short, straight line on a piece of paper with a brush and ink requires you to discover how much ink to have on the brush, how much pressure to put on the brush, how fast to move the brush, how to lift the brush off the page. Do you press on it before you lift it? Um, so all these details, you know. And, and in the doing, uh, you know, first five times, you know, you don't really learn very much. Uh, next twenty times, you start to notice, oh, if I get this much ink on the brush, it doesn't get splotchy and it isn't scratchy. If I touch it like this, um, it makes 
in a point of contact that has a fullness. If I move it with this much pressure and at this pace, that fullness flows across the page. And then if you lift it up like this. And so through the learn through the experience, something's being learned. Your mind, in a way, is setting up its own notion of what should happen. Problem is, your hand, your wrist, your elbow, your arm, your shoulder, your back, haven't quite moved as fast as your mind. So, so you watch your own imperfection. Hmm? And then, and in some ways much more interestingly, as you do it 20 times, 50 times, you start to see this subtle attitude with which you engage the task or engage the art, whatever way you think of it. Um, is there a certain touch of aggression? Yeah. A certain touch of ambition? A certain touch of fear? If I'm not careful, I'll get it wrong. Yeah. It's like the more you draw And then as I was doing this, and all this is sort of like drawing me in, and um, with a certain ambivalence, in some ways, I was thinking, well, isn't this fascinating? And I was also thinking, are we done yet? <laughs> How much longer does this go on? <laughs> and I think that's very common in our practice. You know, it, it stimulates a deep sincerity, and we're also looking at our watch to see if we're finished yet. <laughs> we're truly appreciative from what we're learning, and it's like it feels a little bit like torture. <laughs> it, it's. The marvelous thing about Kaz was like at one point he came over and he put his hand on top of mine and, and with the body that had drawn this a thousand times, ten thousand times, he just let it go through my hand, through his hand to my hand, to the brush and the paper, you know? He wasn't trying to shame me. He wasn't trying to say, Hey, stupid, here's the right way to do it. Um, you know, it was, wasn't an act of dominance. It was an act of kindness, you know? As if to say, yes, all your humanness is pouring forth. You know? As I get into it, some of me just simply 
wanted to get it right. That way in which we want to get our life right. You know, we want to get the different ways we're engaging our life right. We want to get <coughs> our relationships right. We want to get our sitting right. In some ways we have ideas as to what right is, you know? And and then in some ways we don't, you know, which is a whole interesting proposition. But then there's a deep-seated psychological, emotional involvement in it, you know. There was, there was one point where I could watch as I was doing this, moving this brush across a big, empty, white space, and there was almost a fear, you know. And I would say that the sincerity of our practice uh, draws out of us a, um, a vulnerability, you know. This matters. What I'm doing, my engagement in this matters. And it matters so much I'm committing to it. And in that commitment, there's a vulnerability. And, And so this is the learning by doing. This is the learning by engaging. This is the learning by giving over and being the doing. Yeah. And we could say this is the very stuff of our meditation, you know. Give over, you know. How, how is there absorption? There's absorption by being absorbed in the activity of the moment. Being absorbed in the inhale. Being absorbed in the experience of the exhale. But there's also the absorption of moving a, uh, a brush across the page. There's the absorption in listening as another person speaks their truth. that the activity of life, the relatedness of life, has this opportunity, this constant interplay. And and then we explore it, discover it, in the repetitive doing of breath after breath, moment after moment. The challenge for us there is Can we have a renewal of that kind of effort? You know, you know, we, when our when our meditation becomes sort of rote, or wooden, or mechanical, of course the mind strays. 
It's bored. <laughs> we, we, we've turned the dynamic energy of being alive into some sort of wooden mechanical process. Something in us just says, no thank you. <laughs> I'm going to worry about this, imagine this, <laughs> get annoyed by that. The challenge is this renewal of a curious involvement. And then often that curious involvement, of course we think, well, this of course will evoke serenity. But actually, most of the time it doesn't. And the wisdom of imperfection, the wisdom of realizing, experiencing and realizing that that's the nature of the human condition, is that so-called imperfection is, is just the display of what it is to be a conditioned existence. There's a Buddhist teaching and uh, with lots of big words. And here it is. There's the Trikaya. Yeah? And, and you have the Dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and the Nirmanakaya. Kaya is a realm of being that... Uh, a realm of being. Sometimes called a world but it's something more alive and interactive than just a solid, substantial, independent existence. The Dharmakaya is this no eyes, no ears, no depending on this. I have no home, I have no life, I have no means, I have no magic. You know, this going beyond any formulation, going beyond any attachment, going beyond any identity. This is the Dharmakaya. The Nirmanakaya is what's manifest in this moment. This moment is itself. Yes, it's part of a dynamic interplay of all sorts of conditions, but here it is, and it's itself. Here we are, just who we are, sitting here. We're not somebody else. If any one of us was to leave, it would be a different experience. Um, and then the interplay between the two of those is called the Sambhogakaya. And then, with the teaching of Buddha, and then generally that's called uh, the bliss, the, the bliss being. But really, um, it has the potential of being the source of suffering, the source of dukkha, and the source of sukkha. 
and pity. The, the, the source of affliction and the source of liberation. Yeah. Like we, we, we can struggle with making that single stroke and we can struggle with our own struggling. We can struggle with, well, how come I just don't do it exquisitely the way Kaz does it? At a certain point, he would lift the pen, the, the, the brush, and just do what, to my simple eye, looked like a marvelous expression of what he was asking us to do. So we can struggle, sometimes reactively, blatantly, with what's coming up, and then sometimes subtly. But it, when we start to engage and be absorbed in, there's an undoing of the structures of the self. Yeah. And, and the undoing is facilitated by how they come into awareness. Yeah. And it doesn't mean they're annihilated. It just means how they're related to, how they're grasped, how they're, how they're the source of clinging, how they're the source of demanding that things be different from how they are. You know, that's what's being undone. When you fail at drawing a single line several hundred times, um, it stops bothering you. <laughs> As long as next time you're starting over, you know, next time is a brand new opportunity to do a three-inch single line. You know? um, and how do we bring that kind of uh, attitude into our everyday lives? How do we bring that attitude to the workings of the person that we are? How do we bring that into how we relate to uh, others? You know? How do we stop being frustrated by the fact that they're not perfect? No. A couple of weeks ago, um, in Zen, as in Vipassana, often we do, you know, one-on-one -on -one interviews, and just by coincidence, sort of coincidence, I talked to the woman in the relationship, and then the next day I talked to the man in the relationship.
And I talked to the woman in their relationship and, you know, and she was saying, well, there's a lot of problems in our relationship and it's really difficult, you know, and I'm just really struggling with it. You know, I'm just having a hard time. Then the next day I talked to the man and he said, things are pretty good in our relationship. <laughs> Yeah, it's going well. <laughs> and all I could think was, you know, apart from the gender thing, I'll, I'll, leave, I'll, leave, I'll leave that alone. That <laughs> um, each of us has our own relationship, you know, just by coincidence. Um, the person in our relationship has the name has the same name as this person who's having their relationship with someone who has the same name as us. You know, that, that we are um, I remember a long time ago I was I was married and I was and I was getting married and a good friend of mine, Norman Fisher, we were ordained together as and priests. And my ex-wife's name was, uh, and still is, Melody. And, and, <laughs> and at the ceremony, in, in the Zen, you were allowed to speak. You know, at a certain point, you do it, and then everybody, and, and, and Norman stood up and he says, Well, Paul, you're a man, and Melody, you're a woman, so of course you're never going to understand each other. <laughs> And it proved to be more true than either of us <laughs> would have dared to think. Um, but but that way, in this self that we are, this person that we are, uh, interacts with the world, which is what it is, you know. And we could say our, our knowing, our skillfulness of that interaction is imperfect. You know, we don't get it perfectly right. We don't communicate perfectly. You know, the Zen Center is a big Sangha. And sometimes I think all our problems arise from miscommunication. You know? Somebody says this, someone else hears that, you know? And then they react to that and then feed that back to this person and this person's uh, upset because that's not what they said. Yeah. We can be upset we can be frustrated, we can be disappointed, we can be hurt, we can be lonely, we can feel unloved, unappreciated. Or we can be drawn in by the very same characteristics into discovery. What is this person trying to say to me? You know, just the same way 
in our meditation, you know. Can you notice? Can you listen deeply? Can you see clearly? Can you pay attention, you know? That, that very same dimension into all of our life, into how we relate to others, and how we to relate to the self. You know, and we could say that the very act of Vipassana <laughs> I was trying to see if it was nine o'clock, like everybody's timer is set. <laughs> According to this, there's four more minutes. <laughs> uh, the, the very act of uh, engagement has its teaching when it's infused with awareness. You know, how do we uh, keep rediscovering that? You know, meditation is to rediscover your body, rediscover your breath, rediscover awareness each time you sit. And Vipassana is this investigative awareness. The world, our imperfections, our relatedness, it's all there as a teaching. The, The human mind is so attuned, so inclined towards judgment. You could say, you know, existentially, this is how we kept the species alive. That we're discerning how to thrive and not to perish. But if we take that discernment and let it be curiosity, like even if you have a difficult experience and say to yourself, what did I learn from that? It's a very different process then from who is right and who is wrong. What are we learning from how we're relating to each other rather than which one of us is right and which one of us is wrong? Yeah. I talked to that couple and then the, a couple of days later they were leaving Zen Center there going off to live in India. I travel around India for six months. And I said, I hope you have a great time. <laughs> really, what else can we hope to do, do in, our, in relating to all of this? You know, I hope we have a great time. You know? I hope we... We persist and discover how to relate to each other more effectively, how to listen deeply, how to let that deep human need for intimacy and connectedness, how to let it flourish you know, internally and interactively. You know? So the Sambhogakaya 
is, we could say, when we approach this interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh so beautifully calls it, when we approach it with this sensibility of learning, this sensibility of what we might even call the beauty of imperfection, rather than, you know, the deficit. When we expect ourselves or expect others to be perfect, I mean, constantly, um, every day is a bad day. (laughs) Every interaction will fall short of its perfection. But when we approach it with that sensibility of learning, when we approach it with that sensibility of, well, I hope you have a great time. No? I hope that as you go through this amazing process of having a relationship with another human being, that there is learning, there's insight, there is compassion, there's patience, there's generosity, you know? That the paramis, as we engage in this vulnerable way, the paramis just sort of make sense. What other attitude would you approach life with? You know? Would you cultivate your own impatience? (laughs) Your own uh, sort of resentment? You know? Goodness, they pop up readily enough without any encouragement, so... So this is the teaching, you know, the dharmakaya, then go beyond the particulars, the nirmanakaya. And, you know, there's a way in which we can um, appreciate, we can savor. You know, sometimes that's an interesting way to sit, savoring the experience that's arising. And then the interplay between the two. The, uh, the Sambhogakaya. Okay. So, thank you very much.